This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror writer who has worked regularly for Killer Horror Critic and on Spectre Watch, a personal journey through the filmography of Spectre Vision. Next to that, he's one of my closest friends in the realm of horror. Beautiful welcomes to Justin Drebeck. Thank you. It's it's pronounced Drebeck, just for... Drebeck? I was going to say Drebeck. Yeah. We're going to keep this it's in. It's fine. Keep my yeah, humility awesome. in there. No, it's <laughs> Justin fine. Justin Drebeck. Yeah. Uh, does it happen more often? It happens quite a bit, but I, I don't really care. But if people are going <laughs> to... It's nice if people know who I am. <laughs> just kidding. Oh, yeah. Just so used to seeing it written down, and now i got to say it out loud. Well... I just start, I start crying for the rest of this interview. I'm just crying. Oh, uh, no. I'll know that I did it. No, it's fine. Who knows? <laughs> you may actually get a bit emotional today. We'll find yeah, out. Um, I probably will. Oh, well, you know, this is a great place for it. It's a safe space for that. And uh, knowing the film we're going to talk about today, uh, I probably will get a little emotional, too. So, we well, go. welcome yeah. aboard. So nice to have you on here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good. Uh, happy to hear it. Well, before we begin our discussion, I'd like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic. And this particular quote that I've chosen today is a little long. So for people who have already been listening in, you may have heard me mention a couple of times that within academic discourse on beauty, it's quite common that his scholars like to avoid the topic of beauty. And this is a quote that talks a little bit about why. And maybe as we go along, if I get the opportunity, I'll explain it a little bit further. Uh, but I thought it also fit quite a bit with this movie since the perspective that makes them avoid things, I think falls really nicely with this film as well. So I think it's a great example of, well, you'll see, you'll see. Let's get to the quote. Okay. The banishing of beauty from the humanities in the last two decades has been carried out by a set of political complaints against it. But, as I will try to suggest, these political complaints against beauty are themselves incoherent. When I say that beauty has been banished, I do not mean that beautiful things have themselves been banished, for the humanities are made up of beautiful poems, stories, paintings, sketches, sculpture, film, essays, debates, and it is this that every day draws us to them. I mean something much more modest. That conversation about the beauty of these things has been banished, so that we can co-inhabit the space of these objects, yet speak about their beauty only in whispers. There's only that little touch that we're talking about there. I'll tell you a little bit later who said that and what that really has to do with what we're talking about today, but that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. But first of all, Justin. Let's talk yes. a bit about your relationship with horror. How did you get involved in all of this uh, craziness that is our horror life? Uh, um, being a kid and watching Scream for the first time was one of the first moments Ooh. I remember feeling like, oh, I feel like there's something that is for me. And I didn't know why. And I was probably too young to be watching a movie about a bunch of teenagers killing each other. But, you know. <laughs> 
yeah, it was just like this. I was, and my dad watched it with me. I remember we rented it on VHS, and he hates horror movies, but I I loved it, and so I kept on renting it every time. I'd be like, oh, rent me, rent me Scream, because I can't rent it. Can you get it for me? And I'm sure there's probably other times when I remember it before, but I think that was the first time. So Wes Craven, I guess, would be my entryway into it, and then eventually led to reading an author named Stephen King. He's not too popular. But uh, I, I think I've heard of him. Like he's yeah. a little indie guy, right? Yeah, just yeah, not doing a lot, but <laughs> no. So, and then I started reading, and then reading it allowed my imagination to go even bigger than what film did. And I think right. just reading like these scary stories that I was probably too young to read, and like Pet Cemetery, for example, I was like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of sex in here. There's a lot of violence there's a lot of things i should not be reading but like i am i'm in like i'm hooked on this and to me there was something beautiful about having that excitement about just things that are like that go bump in the night sort of thing like there's something about addressing it and like being frightened by reading being frightened by watching a movie i think has such power in it that you're allowed to like express like feelings and understand things about yourself that maybe you didn't know before and i guess as a kid horror is such a gateway and there's a lot of better horror than reading pet cemetery parents but uh there's a lot more better gateway horror but for me like i still remember that like being like oh my goodness i can't put this down i'm frightened but i love this cat even though it's evil and i love this kid <laughs> even though it's evil and shouldn't be here so. they're very lovable you're right and i had i had the same yeah. kind of development as well i mean i, I had a lot of the child entry level stuff as well you know your are real monsters and goosebumps stuff like that but uh, how old were were you when you watched scream for the first time do you recall oh had to have been came out in 96 right yeah so i probably watched it around 97 30 almost 38 now so my I'm bad at math very bad at math uh i was young but like old enough to like i think kind of my parents are like okay this is fine we'll watch it with you sort of thing but i had to have been like 11 i think that's right okay yeah, yeah. maybe a little maybe a little bit older maybe a little bit younger yeah fair because i think we watched it a little later in its timeline i think I, we watched the first one on vhs because the second one was about to come out in vhs yeah and i saw the second one in the theaters which Ooh, yeah, nice yeah that was one of my first like by myself horror movie experiences and yeah. oh really I, I just yeah for some of the reasons i think early on i didn't really like a lot of horror that i was sort of seeing because after i saw scream i sort of ventured out but like i kept on wanting to go back to it and since then i've branched out a lot more you know now i read stephen king <laughs> no but <laughs> quite a broad branching uh, yes yeah <laughs> No, but uh, for then, but for uh, for a while, I was like, I just loved it. And I, I was in a lot of community theater and my, we wrote this like horror, like murder mystery. And I just pretty much stole Skeet Ulrich's character and just played mm -hmm. him. And, I, and like, I was like, oh, look at what I wrote. I wrote this cool character named him Skeet. It was very original. <laughs> Oh, that is some community theater right there. I've done yeah. some <laughs> stuff like that myself. Uh, I feel you. Yeah. I feel you on that. 
but that's a great uh, sign of your passion as well. If you want to just show like, Hey, this character's made an impact on me. And there's a part of you that just wanted to be Billy. Yeah. But I, that's not good. <laughs> ah, that's... Well, you did it in the stage, <laughs> I mean, you know, yes. that's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm going to gravitate towards this like psychopath who's like killing his uh, friends. This is very healthy. <laughs> it is. Well, as but. you were saying, I think what's so strong about being afraid of things is it does put you in that vulnerable state to where you can reflect a little bit more. And especially at a young age, something like Scream is both terrifying and super fun at the same time. So I see it as a great gateway for you to just have fun. And if you were having fun with Skeet Ulrich's performance, I mean, you're young. Of course, you're going to be like, yeah. I want to be cool Johnny Depp knockoff. I want to do that. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and then you think about it, and then you watch Scream again as you get older, and you sort of see the cultural reference points it makes. It adds a whole new level that I didn't have when I first saw it. So I love that it works in so many ways, because it's basically, you know, so many in-references, and it's so meta, but you don't know what it's meta about, so you're just taking it at face value. And it and it works. And so to then to once you break it down, you're like, oh my goodness, that opening phone call is all a bunch of references to other <laughs> horror movies that I don't know. And I'm like, okay, cool, Jason. All right, so it's not Jason who's the killer in Friday the thirteenth, mm-hmm. you know? And then you finally see Friday the thirteenth, and you're like, Oh, okay, that unlocked that part of my brain. Okay, what else does he talk about in that phone conversation? That unlocks this, that unlocks that. And I think it's very powerful to have that experience and i feel like it's a great entry point at least growing up for me into the broader world of horror film yeah i'm really hoping that the newest one that's going to come out will do the same for this generation as well i mean we also had uh freaky recently Mm -hmm. that did a great job trying to emulate you know a lot of movies from the past without doing too much of screams meta stuff but there was enough link in there that if you know what you're looking for yeah and those are my favorite thing it's once you allow your audience to go on a journey with you with your characters but then you're also like okay we're also nodding at this we're also saying oh over here this happened so once you want to go back and you come back to watch this you're going to be like oh wow holy crap i thought freaky was phenomenal oh freaky was so cool yeah i i knew i was gonna like it but i had expected it to be like ah that was nice but I was like, this movie's fucking awesome. Like, yeah. it was so good. I went in the same way. I'm like, this is going to be fun. And I'll like watch it, put it aside, and then probably never come back to it and be like, oh, this is a great experience. Yeah. But then I'm like, I want to watch that again. Holy crap, mm-hmm. that was so good. Uh, another film that I feel the exact same way is Psycho Gorman. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking uh, forward to it. It's coming to Shudder soon, right? Yeah, I think at the I think end of the month. By the time this is released, it'll be yeah. on Shudder, yeah. Oh, that is another one that I'm just like, I bought it and I was like, uh, I don't want to spend 20 bucks on this. But then <laughs> I am so glad I did because I watched it like 10 times. Wow, and it does something okay. very similar that it's very um, cheesy is not the right word, but it's very intentionally like 90s in the way that yeah. it's set up. But it's like done with so much love and care that you and it's just mm. so much fun. Yeah. Freaky is similar in, in terms of like, it's going to be so much fun, but you're going to like think about things and want to explore it. And this is very similar to that, although they're drastically different movies, of course. 
Well, I, I definitely want to check it out. Everything I've heard about Psycho Goreman is just fun, 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 and awesomeness. Yep. And I heard a lot of people saying they cried their eyes out watching it because it's a very touching film. And yep. if you anybody out there, if you've seen the poster art for this thing and you haven't decided if you want to watch it yet, yeah, I said that. Somebody said it was a very touching film. So maybe <laughs> it's a surprising film. Go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say it's pretty touching. All right. I think I, I, anyone should watch it. It even if you don't like it, it's still I think important. And with Shutter, it's like I try to check out whatever they put out, whether before mm-hmm. it's on Shutter or just because it's on Shutter. They've got such a great yes. curation of stuff that I'm like, even if I don't like this, it's worth checking out because then you're you're going to be surprised. And it's like you already pay a subscription fee. Why not take advantage of it? There you go. Perfectly stated. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people who do that with Netflix, but for me, I, I guess I have a different relationship with Netflix just because I, I, have, I, have I don't one. always love it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it started out pretty strong. I felt, you know, Stranger Things made me like, OK, Netflix is going to do some real cool stuff. They're not going to yeah. have limitations. And then it turned into like old Cinemax, basically, with their uh, <laughs> old products. I, I completely agree, but I think it's also they were one of the first ones who were like, okay, we're going to have all this original content and it's going to be out the gate strong. We don't have a lot of competition. Now you look around and it's got HBO Max. You've got all these other people, Apple Plus. You've got all these companies that are like, okay, now some of that good content that would have gone to Netflix because there's no other place to go has other homes. Netflix still has to put out new content but they're also really just hoping that people want to watch whatever movie that's on Netflix, you know, like I think yeah. they're more concerned now about keeping a library of stuff that is all being fought for now. Cause like, you'll be like, Oh, this is on Netflix for three months. And then two months later, it's on HBO max for t- two months, you know? So it's a weird time, but it's also yep. a great time, but I definitely feel it has dropped the content of quality for Netflix's originals has kind of dissipated because I don't know if it's as big a focus for them. And maybe I'm wrong. Fair. Yeah. You, I mean, we we won't know unless they flat out tell us, I suppose. And even then, a company... Like- I mean, as I own Netflix, as I own Netflix, I can safely say our original content isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> I don't own Netflix. No. No. No, I think I would have put that in your intro. That would have been uh, <laughs> interesting... It's like, oh yeah, he also owns a small thing, Netflix. You know, it's like Stephen yeah, no, King. No one's heard of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no one's heard of it. Oh, oh man! Just like the film we're going to talk about today, I don't think a lot of people know this film, right? It's it, this one made some mild waves, you could say, when it came out. I don't think there was any controversy at all about the existence of this film. What are we going to yeah. talk about today? Uh, Doctor Sleep, the mm-hmm. sequel to The Shining. Yes, the sequel to the impossible to make movie. So yes. you knew it had quite a bit to live up to. And uh, well, you brought it to the table. What would you say? Did it live up to it? Uh, it surpassed all of my personal expectations for it. I think it is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. I saw it six times in the theater. I brought everyone I could because no one was going to see it in the theater. And everyone I took to... Loved it. I thought it was, I think it's exactly what I needed for a film that makes no sense to be able to merge the book, The Shining, the film, The Shining, Mm -hmm. the book, Dr. Sleep, into what Mike Flanagan is able to create 
by combining those three worlds into something that not only works, but works extremely well as a sequel, and then also as its own sort of standalone film about the journey through Dan Torrance and Abra Stone's sort of journey of figuring out how they can get by and survive in a world that is like very hard for people who shine. And it becomes even more hard because you have these psychic vampires that are chasing them, which sounds ridiculous. When I read the back jacket of, uh, I remember this moment, when I read the back jacket of Dr. Sleep, I'm like, I love the cover, so I was going to buy it. But I'm like, what? what, what? And then I'm what? like, yeah. I was like, what's going on? Okay, that's not going to work. And then I actually love the book and and love the movie, I think, more than I love the book. Oh, so. that's an interesting take. Okay, yeah, I love to hear that. Well, for those of you who haven't read the book or seen the film, I have a quick synopsis for you real quick. So <clears throat> this is the briefest sort of touch upon the plot line that you can expect. So I have written, years after surviving the horrifying attacks in the Overlook Hotel as a child, Dan Torrance is a shell of a man. Now in his 40s, Dan looks to drink and drugs to cope with the onslaught of spirits he still sees as a result of his shine. Eventually, he becomes fed up with the vicious cycle of pain and destruction his addiction has created in his life. He moves to a small New Hampshire town to get away from it all, and he joins an Alcoholics Anonymous program while trying to get back on his feet. Now, with his shine no longer dulled by inebriation, Dan finds himself confronted with the cries of the dead once more. He also begins to make a connection with a young girl by the name of Abra Stone, who also shines, but hers is much brighter. Abra and Dan find themselves the targets of a group of energy vampires known as the True Knot. They must face their inner demons while trying to stop the group's leader, Rose the Hat, from continuing her voracious path of violence as she attempts to devour the essence of every creature that shines bright enough to sate her never-ending appetite. Which, yeah, that's pretty much, if you were to succinctly put it, that's what happens, but this movie is so much more than that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, have you read the book? I have not read the book. I am quite a slow reader for some reason, especially when it comes to narrative uh, books. So like if give me academic, boring stuff all day and my brain seems to process it. But when you give me fiction, it, it, what takes most people like a month is going to take me a year. And then I just don't gotcha. I just put it down. So, yeah, But I had my uh, my partner told me about the book and I was like, that sounds really damn weird. I don't know how that's going to work as a movie. Yeah. And then I saw the movie and I was like, everything works so perfectly because Mike Flanagan can't make a bad movie. I agree. He can't. And uh, it boggles my mind how I can relate to every movie he's made in such a personal way. But mm -hmm. it feels that one of the best things is I'm like, also, it's a good movie. Like there's movies that I'm like, oh, my God, I relate to this character, or this storyline or something. And you're like, ah, oh, it's an OK movie. But like, I love it because it connects here. Like mm -hmm. Flanagan gets you in the heart sometimes rips it out of you and then shoves it back in and you still feel things at, in all of his films in ways that I feel like few other, he's just so, I feel like he shines. Like, I mean, that's a stupid thing to say, but I truly do. I think he shines and, and that's why he's able to adapt King so well because it sort of taps into the emotional core of the story, which King is so good at bringing you into these little moments and giving you like way more detail than you probably think you need but it adds to the overall emotional journey you go on. Yeah. I'm always impressed with his ability to use visuals and sound 
to convey the exact same level of detail that King's prose can do. And prose is mm-hmm. always way more capable of giving you context along the way. Right. Like I remember when I was younger, when I was interested in writing short stories and stuff, my mom bought me on writing. And okay. Just, yeah. That was one of the few books I ever just like absorbed within about a week. You know, I was just so into it. And he had a little exercise in that when he was trying to tell you the best way to describe a bar from your main character's perspective. And he showed you how most writers would just have, oh, they go to the bar, there's some stools in front of it, and the neon signs glowing green. And he, he went to the bartender who had a gruff look in his face, and he asked him a question. And he's like, now, technically, that's not wrong. That is straight to the point. You should be succinct. But then he gave his mm-hmm. version, which is like a page of him yep. describing how the peanuts reminded him of the time that his wife had a fit with him and they broke broke uh, a glass jar and cut his hand on it and stuff. And yep. it's like, yeah, he gets to the heart of characters' emotions and memories like no other. And Flanagan does it just with everything. <laughs> yeah, Flanagan does that in, especially Dr. Sleep, I think more than any of his movies or shows, he taps into that so well. And like you said, through sound design, through... Um, you could sense what Dan is going through during like the moments when like he's throwing up in the toilet in the beginning of the movie, like yeah, and and you, then you're flashing his head, which is doing what King does. It's going to show you like, oh, this is what happened and why Dan's in this situation. This is where Dan's at now, and just the performance by Ian McGregor, just sort of the music, sort of the cues, all of it sort of connects in a way that just feels so raw. And real and like you're reading a book. I think another thing he does so well, specifically in this movie too, and why I think he adapts King so well, is King loves a good flashback and he loves a good memory. He puts a lot of memories in his stuff, but memories are hard to convey in a film without doing the cliche, uh, now we cut to a 15-minute sequence of exposition, whereas Flanagan will make the memories feel like they're happening now because that's how memories work, is in that moment you are reliving the situation. So yeah, Dan is a five-year-old boy seeing girls standing at the end of the hallway. He is 12 talking to his mom who doesn't want to look him in the eyes anymore. So that the way that Flanagan has created the continuity of this film to where all of it seems to take place in a linear line, yet there's so much of it. That's not part of the linear path. Uh, that's very bold, but that's exactly what makes it work. He knows what he's doing, and he doesn't really seem to be affected by any sort of uh, hesitation to put that on screen. None whatsoever, and um, it just it is just something that every time I watch this movie, especially the director's cut, which is the only one I really watch now, when it breaks it up into chapters, those chapters feel warranted and. Mm-hmm. Like you're on a linear journey, like you're, but you, it does kind of go all over. It's non-linear, but it's very linear in the way that it's presented. It's presented yes. like this is the beginning of it, this is the mm-hmm. end, but it goes on these like sideways journeys here or there, and I think that's brilliant. And I think breaking it up into the chapters, like the director's cut does, adds to that level of being like, I am a part of something right now. And I know other movies have done chapter, you know, things like uh, Mandy's a good example of that, where it sort of Mm -hmm. has like titles for the segments of sort of what it represents. But going from that, it's based on a book that's merging Kubrick's movie, King's book, and then King's book to Flanagan's movie and have it all work is 
brilliant beyond belief. And you're going through that journey too, as you're watching, you're like, Oh yeah, that does look like the shiny hotel from Kubrick. Oh, but I have the emotional connection to these characters from Kubrick's film. Like you're just like, okay. Mm. Like, I mean, granted, uh, the act actor who played Wendy in this one, I love her. I can't remember her name right now. Even though I just watched it last night. Um, she does a great job. She's not Wendy from Kubrick's version, but she is. Like, because she right. carries that emotional weight. The kid who plays young Danny in this one isn't the kid who played young Danny in the other one, obviously. But he is. Like, all of those things work. Like, Dick O'Hanran, like, uh, Dick O'Hanran, like, oh my god. That guy. I'm oh, like, man, that casting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I'm like, is it. <laughs> I'm like, is this Scatman Carruthers? Like, this is amazing. Like, it was just so good. And you know it's not, but it doesn't matter. And I think that's so, that's what's so powerful about Flanagan is he's like, I'm not going to be able to recreate this perfectly, but I'm going to recreate it like it's someone's memory of what might have been. And it's going to be a little different, but it's going to be, it's going to represent enough of what you know, but you're filtering it through like a different perspective of memory. Right. Uh, I think that's a great way to frame that as well, that the memories are never perfect. So it's a great thing to also show. It's often, okay, this is about a different film, so it may seem a little off topic, but it isn't. I remember uh, in a discourse about Halloween Kills, when it's coming out soon, hopefully, uh, that there are people who are a little kind of eh on it because they didn't love Halloween 2018. I wasn't massively thrilled about it myself for various reasons, but it's because of a particular phrase that we keep hearing with continuations of properties where they say, we're going to get down to the essence of that original film. Oh, oh, this director, huge fan of the original film. They know the essence of it really, really well. And they want to get back to that. And what you discover often is that their essence, what they got out of it may have been different than what you got out of it. So films were more complicated than that. Stories are more complicated than that life is more complicated than that. Yeah. And so by having this recreation of the shinings, basically <laughs> uh, Flanagan does a great job of t- just kind of hearkening back to like, this is what you remember. So I'm going to do that. Yeah. Even though it may not be exactly how you remember it because we don't need it to be that way. Dan is not, you know, the most clear, uh, he, he's a, uh, what do you call it? He's like a flawed narrator to, to a certain extent. Because he's had his own demons and problems, he's been a little distracted his life. Uh, Distracted is one word. I think avoiding it and not wanting to exist is another one. Because, I mean, that's the whole point of his addiction, which is something that I can relate to. It's like, not in terms of like being addicted, but it's like, once you have like darkness in your life and you're trying to escape it, the easiest way to escape it is through means of like unhealthiness. Like it's means Mm -hmm. to like, Make it so you aren't here. And he thinks that's his only way he can deal with it is by getting blackout drunk, doing these things, tapping into his father's violence and alcoholism by shutting off all of the past. Even though he, you know, in the book in the, and in the movie, uh, Dick gives him the means to like hide those ghosts away that are haunting him. Mm-hmm. But even in doing that, it's not a solution because he can still pick up on the emotions of 
that woman being hurt down the street, it's going to affect him. Like all these things. And so his only answer in his mind is like, I need to shut this off. I need to ignore all this and just go into nothingness, which is such a dangerous thing. And I think it's such a thing that is so true to people. Just human nature is like, we sort of uh, want to run away because we're afraid of confronting truths about ourselves that are maybe not the best. And I think this movie does such a brilliant job of showing Dan's journey where he starts out at the worst point of his life. Like that description's perfect. And it's not for that long of the movie because you sort of see Dan start to very quickly on like 40 minutes in. I guess not that quickly, mm-hmm. but it's a three hour movie. Uh, uh, he's sort <laughs> of already on this journey of allowing himself to confront the trauma from his past. And it's not easy. Like, I mean, the most horrifying moment to that me in that movie is when he's at uh, that place in New Hampshire where he rents room for $85 a week. If I can rent a room for $85 a week that looked like that, sign me up. Oh my God. I will Yo, live there. Yeah. That room is like <laughs> perfect. I'm like, perfect. Uh, when, when can I move? <laughs> <laughs> uh but when oh, he's yeah. there and he and he's in bed and it's i think the culmination of where like he's going to realize he needs to make some changes when that sort of apparition of the woman and the dead child are in bed with him mm-hmm. and she's like they still haven't found me and that's the woman he left with the kid on the bed after she threw up like it's like so dark and so heavy but it's sort of his wake-up call to be like i need to get help and yeah. the the way that the universe sort of sets up where the first person he meets is like this guy who doesn't know him from anywhere. And he's like, oh, he looked like, are you running away? He's like, yeah, I guess I'm running away from myself is what Dan says to him. And then mm-hmm. Cliff goes, uh, I guess I said the actor's name, but he goes, well, that's a pickle, isn't it? Wherever you go, there you are. You know, basically. <laughs> and then. And then you then you see that because Dan has like left. He's got your first New Hampshire, met this guy who sort of is like, hey, I'll get you a job. I'll pay for your two first weeks here. And Dan's like, why are you doing this? And the guy's just like, you just you just have a look like I, I'm going to I'm going to stick my neck out for you because like I feel there's a reason. And that I think unlocks and then Dan's brain there. He's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if that character shines like Dan does, but he certainly is a wonderful example of like the kindness that we can give to somebody else yeah i think it's so imperative and so important that we can like meet anyone on their journey and be like hey you know what if i have an opportunity to help you out i'm going to and sometimes you don't sometimes you're just like you know what you've got your own things but i think the beauty of it is like those moments where you're just like oh you know what hey yeah i can do that or like I could be here for you in some way. I don't know you, but like, I feel like, I feel like if I could get, get a sense that you're like on a journey of betterment, then I'll be there for you. And he sort of, I think he sensed that before Dan even sensed it, that Dan left New Jersey to go to New Hampshire because he knew that he needed to make changes. And I think sometimes instinctively we just do that. And I don't think Dan knew. But I think once that moment in the bed happens, which is so scary, and he goes downstairs, it's like, basically, I need help. I need to stop being an alcoholic. And that guy's like, yeah, 
of course, come to AA. Yeah. And I think it's mm. awesome. And I, I don't really know how I feel about AA personally. Um, I think it's, I think it's very helpful. I think it's good. And I think to have community is very good, but you know, the, the Christian bent of it, I don't really necessarily completely agree with. Right. Uh, but, but I still think to have these programs that are there to help you get better and help you talk through things, I think is immensely important. And I think this film does such a good job showing Dan's journey. Like I was thinking about this last night when I was watching it again, I would watch a movie that was just Dan's sobriety journey. Like I would watch that movie. If it's just him, yeah. him sort of reawakening and shining, you don't have Rose the Hat, you don't have anything. I would watch a two hour movie of just Dan Torrance getting to New Hampshire and being like, okay, I got to get my shit together. All right, let me figure out how I do this. Okay, I'm going to we'll go work at this hospice. I'm going to help these people pass out. I think some of those beautiful moments in that movie are when Dan is there with like the older people moving on. Yes, absolutely. And he's sort of sure. reaching out to the ones who can shine or can't shine and is able to help them move on. And oh my God, the cat. Azzy oh. the cat. Oh. Talk about perfect casting. That cat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the eyes on that cat, the way it has the most wise. It's gonna be okay, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Oh uh, well, it's like I was talking to this when uh, one of the person I went saw it with. Afterwards, I was like, "That cat can shine. Like that cat, you can see it. It shines. That cat knows what it's doing. Mm-hmm. That cat knows. It has such empathy in its eyes, and it's like, I think in that moment, that cat probably thought that actor was dying. It was like, hey, you know what? It's gonna be okay. I'm here for you. Like that's how I take it." Plus, I mean, it's a cat. Cats are not yeah. the most uh, empathetic of creatures, usually. No. So to have such a gentle, almost dog-like look in that cat's eyes, I thought either they did something really good with the lighting to get the eyes to shine that way, or they just had the nicest, wisest little wizard of a cat that they ever could have found <laughs> to get onto yeah. that side. Yeah. Or or watch me Coven Mike Flanagan talks about it someday. It's like, yeah, we uh, had an animatronic cat. It wasn't real. <laughs> you can't make cats look that nice. Yeah, cats aren't that nice. Cats are terrible. <laughs> King put the cat in the King put the cat in the book, so I had to do it. I hate cats. No. I'm <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, some people yeah. are like that. Cat, uh, King definitely has a thing for cats, it seems. You're but, totally right, though. I agree with the feeling about Dan's journey because it, it's interesting to me. The first two-thirds of this film are my favorite parts of the film. It's kind of mm-hmm. what I have with the Lord of the Rings movies. I, The moment they leave the Shire, I actually get a little less interested in the story because I could just watch hobbits doing hobbit shit all day. And I just oh, love yeah. the drama they were building. And that's yep. the same here. I felt like you were saying, there's the beauty of the process of him finding redemption and love for himself. And it's a very Stephen King story that they were telling there. You know, Hearts in Atlantis, The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption. All of these stories are very quiet, poignant tales about people who are either helping others. So in Hearts of Atlantis, you know, you have somebody who's basically shining, who has already gotten to the point that they're just going to help others in their own way. And then you have like the Green Mile, you have people who are ostracized for the exact same behavior. And I would have just loved to have seen, how do you get to that point? And yeah, we have the cool 
vampire story, which is cool. I, I can't deny some of, some of the best horror I've actually seen of the last decade is in this movie. But it's amazing how this feels like three kind of isolated stories that kind of clash somewhere around the you know two thirds yeah. mark when they do. It just blows up basically from that point on. Yeah. But I would say in a weird way, that's what makes it feel more like life than other movies that have maybe like a yes. more structured thing. It's because like your life is full of all these different elements coming from and different people in your life and all these things that happen. And you're should be on a journey of self-improvement. I fuck up all the time in that. Uh, but you know, like I'm trying and I feel like that's sort of what this is doing. And then you sort of Abra, who's like a younger version of Dan, a more powerful version of Dan. And it feels like a separate story for a beginning because he doesn't want her in his life because he's like, I've just talked to the stranger through a chalkboard. Like, <laughs> I don't know who this kid is. Like, I don't want to do this. And then you basically have Dick come back and be like, you have to help her because then you find that, oh, because these evil vampire people who when they first start off like that opening scene it lures you in with a sense of just like calm about rose the hat Mm -hmm. you don't think she's going to be this evil woman who runs with the true knot which are basically just like we take the most empathic people and we take the most like sensitive people and we eat their energy we 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 basically take their life essence so i like it it is three very different stories and then it does sort of just collide into, as he said, once it goes back to the point of trauma uh, for Dan, mm-hmm. and then also Abra's like trauma that like all the terrible things that happened in her life that lead up that are all for a long time done by sort of this group that's always off to the side on their own little journey, you know, on their own journey. And then once it collides, that to me feels more like life than a lot of other movies I've seen because that's sometimes how it feels like all these things sort of like smash into each other and you're either, you either pick up the pieces and confront it or you run away. And that could have been Dan's moment where he could have been like, Nope, not doing this, not going back. It's too much. I'm out. Where's that bottle? And there's that scene where he has that bottle, which is his whole entire emphasis. What's what's the shit hits the fan. And he's holding that bottle and you're like, I'm going to, he's going to drink. And he's like, I'm going to let all this go and I can't do it anymore. And he overcomes that and then does it. You know, I think that's a powerful statement and anything. It's like, once you reach that point, you have a choice and you, and no one can tell you what the right choice or wrong choice is, but you have to make one. And he chooses not to drink. He continues, he continues to not sort of uh, tampered down his power, quote-unquote. Yeah. Well, I, say, I, I loved how he essentially decided to be himself, finally. That he's been afraid of who he is because people have been telling him for so long either he was a freak or he was really scared of what he was seeing from his own abilities and, and mm-hmm. basically his worldview that he's been running away from this entire time. At that moment, it's funny how... It's always been a powerful moment to me, but I watched the director's cut for the first time today. I've only seen the theatrical cut until that time. And the little extra detail they have in the director's cut, that builds up to that moment so perfectly 
that yep. this time I caught myself saying like, Dan, don't you do it. I was just out loud. Like, don't you. Yeah. Don't no, do not down, drink. Dan. Yeah. Do not do that, man. Uh, it got me and I've seen the movie yeah. multiple times and I, it yeah. still hooked me in so heavily because I think it's something we can all understand. We all have those moments when we're on the edge of that cliff of, Hey, I could dive in here and yeah. just not have to deal with what's behind me. But sometimes you just turn around and you deal with it and you exactly. see how it goes. Oh, oh yeah. I, and to me, what I've always really thought about the shine, the ability to shine and then in the Dark Tower series, I don't know if you read that, but it's called The Touch. Like, there's, like, in King's thing, it's always sort of there, even if it's not mm-hmm. explicitly referenced as shining. To me, it's, like, a huge metaphor for empathy. And right, and sort of those, there's people in this world who are maybe connected more to a spiritual side of things or emotional intelligence that other people don't have. I think, to me, that's the shine. Now, of course, I can't talk into your head without using my mouth, but I believe that that's what it's referencing. And so you have these characters who are like super, and it's a lot like empathy is hard. It's not easy to be empathic. It's not easy to be always feeling things that like you don't even feel necessarily connected to, but you're picking up on this energy. And once you do, it affects you in a way that some people are like, oh yeah, it doesn't bother me. And you're like, okay, that's great. I wish I could be that way. And so I've always related to Dan as a kid when I watched the original Shining and then I eventually read the first book. I was I really related to it because I had a lot of not anywhere near my dad didn't try to kill me in a hotel or be taken over by a hotel. But like there's a lot of things I relate to in terms of like growing up sort of feeling like I can feel things that I don't think other people around me can or maybe they can. Maybe I'm wrong. Everyone feels that way. I mean, we all have this empathy engine, but like mine doesn't have a turn off valve. My empathy right. engine doesn't like I can't just click it off unless I get really drunk or, you know, it, it choose to right. avoid my empathy engine. And every time I've done that, it doesn't feel healthy or good or like I end up making I think this pandemic's been hard for me beyond belief because it's. Man for the Engine still runs at this full velocity, but I'm by myself most of the time, even still, even though we're opening back up. Uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I feel it, and I've been lucky and blessed to have had a lot of people in my life who I'm close to who have just sort of been there for me, and it's been really good, in yourself included, and just like being able to, like, I need to express this to someone, and I need, because if I don't, I will go insane and i felt like i've kind of gone insane a couple times during this pandemic just by being by myself so much and instead of funneling into writing i would funnel into like a lot of darkness and it's not healthy Mm. but i think even realizing that it's like once things do open up and no matter what that's like or what it is or what it means i'm really excited to get back out there and see how the changes that have happened in this year i can put towards being better and stumble and be better and better and better. And what can I give to the world around me? Like, and that's why I love this movie so much because that's what this movie is. Now, granted, there's a lot of darkness in this movie and there's a lot of death. Like no one pretty much except for Abra is okay in the end. 
yeah, she has new traumas and she has to now go on Dan's journey that he went through at her age to her adulthood and still have that same power of the shine. And I love that scene when Dan's just like, like basically he's telling her not to shine, like let it go. Whatever you do, don't show them because there's going to be people who are going to be after if you do. And that's, he thinks he's doing a good thing. He's like, just, he's like, you got to cut it out. You just got to not do it. And then in the end to have him after all the stuff he has to go through by confronting his trauma from his childhood head on, he basically is like shine. Like you've got to shine. Like Mm -hmm. you have to do this. Like it's not going to be easy, but don't do what I did, which is cut yourself off from it, accept it and be better than me. I think it's a powerful message as well. And I, that idea of this being a metaphor for empathy is pretty strong as well throughout the film. Uh, You know, they're literal energy vampires throughout Mm -hmm. it. And that's what happens if you're an empathetic person and you go through your life, always being open to everybody around you, which is a beautiful thing to do. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get people who feed off of that, who they are built as a sort of, and I use this word in a more scientific version, uh, not to say this as an emotional thing, but you know they're a negative version of you. So I more mean like your polarities are in going in opposite directions. So whereas you produce, they absorb. But some people have like either they have such a heavy deficit that you can't produce quickly enough to help them absorb, or they have no end. It's just a black hole that's something that they will have to work on most of their lives to fill. Now, that's not to say that people don't have both. I've had my own dark spaces as well. And you can crawl out of them. You can also just always have them there. Like Dan has throughout the entire film, as you mentioned, you know, he boxes away all of his traumas and they are a part of him. When Rose tackles him down, she says, oh, you're not alone. Who's there with you? And she mm-hmm. starts to pick apart and open all the boxes. But I do think it's also so beautiful how this film portrays trauma as just a part of life, not to diminish the effects of trauma. It's just got this almost cold matter of fact, like, look, you're going to have it. You're going to box it away and you can either hide from it or you can just acknowledge that it's there and learn from it. And that's what he does. That's how he defeats Rose is he has learned from his trauma She's lived a pretty cushy life, all things considered. She considers herself a god in comparison to him. So it consumes the shit out of her faster than it's consumed anything else because she's so vulnerable to even the remotest of emotional problem. Right. She's she's going through her only trauma right now, which is losing her adopted family. And I think that this this level of empathy that you're talking about – what I okay, the I say that that's the most beautiful. The most beautiful thing for me is what from what you were talking about as well is that excitement you were talking about. That whole I'm here now. I know where I am. I don't like where I am. This is not okay. And yet you can still have that glimmer of hope, not about fixing your own problems, but about the fact that you can grow from this and you can continue to be empathetic to others and not shy away from it. And there we have Abra who just doesn't care about running away from things. So she even yeah. looks at Dan as if he's just kind of silly for telling her not to shine. She's not offended at all. She's just like, uh, whatever. 
Yeah. Like, why, yeah. why would I ever do that? <laughs> Abra is just such a powerful character. And I don't know if you, in the book, it's turns out that she is uh, his niece. Oh, for real? Dan's, yeah. And, I, and okay. I've had conversations with people about this. Yeah, so basically Jack Torrance in, uh, had an affair at some point, and when Dan goes to visit her dying grandma, which we don't see the dying grandma in the film, uh, Dan finds out that, like, okay, she's actually related to you. She's your niece, basically. Mm-hmm. And I've had people like, oh, that should have been in the movie. To me, it's more powerful and says something so much more the way Flanagan says, oh, no, they're not related at all. The only connection yeah. point they have is this ability that not everyone has, the ability to shine. Yeah. And it's like their connection point. And she's far stronger than he is. I think he was, I think Dick says at some point that you were the strongest in the shine, way stronger than me. Mm-hmm. But Abra's even more powerful. And I and I love that. Like there's that scene when they walk into the hotel and dance energy turns on the lights in the halls and yeah. it clicks on clicks on when Abra gets into the hotel the lights are even brighter like yeah. every time she walks into the same spots he was walking it's even more powerful and it's such a visual representation of just how powerful she is and i love that and i get becomes even more powerful that she's not related to dan torrance i agree i think putting it into the context of like oh well the torrance family because jack jack yeah. shine he he you know he had the ability to shine i think wendy did a little uh, but then Jack shut it down even more, and then the ghost in the hotel sort of fed on his ability to shine. And I and I think it's more powerful if you're like, no, this is just something that anyone can have. And it doesn't come from blood. It doesn't come from like this, like, like Dan Torrance isn't a king, you know? He's not no. like leading this line of like mystic, like, uh, <laughs> you know, soldiers. It's not the Skywalkers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I, I didn't really like that in the book. And the fact that there's a throwaway line in that movie when she's like, because dancing on the bench with her is like, you know, a grown man with a 13-year-old girl, people are going to like have some questions. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you're my uncle. Like, we'll just say you're my uncle. Like, so that was a little like nod to uh, the, how, how in the book they are related. I think that shows the level of empathy that Flanagan has. This is yeah. what makes his movie so good. And I, I, yeah. this is what I mean by when somebody says they, they're they a fan, they're going to give the heart and the essence of the original. Okay. But you have to be careful with only taking somebody else's viewpoint and not really yeah. applying your own work to it. Because any, you know, any director who has the skill to put a film together can make any movie. In my opinion, you can make your damn Halloween movie. You can make uh, a sequel to Titanic. If you want to, it, it, like there's no untouchable property because you can make it. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to love them, but you can right. at least make the damn movie. And so we all kind of felt that with Dr. Sleep at first, but the moment I heard the words, Mike Flanagan, there's just something in my heart that said, it's going to be fine. This is going to be something I'm not going to expect. And, you know, I, it's, I think even post Dr. Sleep, he's proven how far beyond that he can go, you know, mm-hmm. taking a property like the turn of the screw and then turning it into haunting a blind manner and be like, yeah, I remember that little short story that was scary, but doesn't really have much heart to it. We're going to really make you feel every single character. And this is the story he read when he was younger. This yeah. is the version of Dr. Sleep he got out of it. 
And I love that he decided to say, look, it's fine if you want to somehow in a narrative way explain the relationship between these characters. Why can't it just be that good people exist? And isn't that more beautiful to think about? Yeah, exactly. And and that that is Flanagan, I think. And to me, it adds a, a level of power that I feel like if it was like in the reveal in the book, you're like, okay, so I guess I'm not a part of this like line of like, you know, people who are strong. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the fact that she's the strongest person to shine and she has no connection other than the fact that people shine can connect with each other. I think that's beautiful, powerful, and it adds a strength to everything. But she also has to like watch her adopted uncle, watch her know that her dad's dead, (laughs) like all these things. And then watch her uncle be taken over by the hotel and her strength in that moment is mirrors uh, Dan's strength when he's confronting uh, Rose the Hat when he says, you don't know where you're standing. And she says that same line to the possessed Dan Torrance, who's the house in all the spirits. And she's like, he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, you don't know who Dan Torrance is. And because the Dan Torrance she knows is like this, even though she does sort of like make fun of him be like, dude, of course I'm going to shine. This is what I need to do and, and disagree with him. She saw the strength he had and she's like, you don't know who he is. You don't know how strong he is. And then that that's enough for him to click out. And then the end of him doing the boiler, which is the end of the original book with Jack Torrance yeah. redeems himself. I think that's beautiful. I think having Dan fulfill sort of the end of the book of the shining is awesome and makes more sense to me because Jack Torrance, I know King loves him. And I know King, when he wrote him, like he didn't like how Jack Nicholson was so cold and mean and just already gone. Mm -hmm. To me, I feel I like that aspect actually of Kubrick's. And what I really like is like, I think Dan's journey should be the way it ends in the movie. I think basically he's like, I need to get rid of this, which is basically he has the exact same thing with Jack does. And I think it's really cool to mirror those. But I think it makes more sense for Dan because we watch Dan go through the work. We watch Dan go through the steps of confronting his own darkness and then confronting the trauma that created a lot of that darkness. While protecting Abra, it's like it's just so good. And I love the way that it makes you feel, even though you're like. Oh man, everyone dies in this movie. <laughs> like everyone. <laughs> yeah. Everyone that you love, apart from yeah. Abra, is just gone by gone. the uh, credits of this film. Which is funny because then that mirrors Dan's beginning journey with Wendy. True. And unlike uh, Wendy, uh, Abra is doing the work to talk to her mom yep. and try to make her mom more comfortable with it. Whereas with Dan, he was so traumatized by the whole situation. Granted, she didn't have her own father attacking her. So, yeah. there, you know, it is true. She dealt with other people's trauma in a very traumatic way, and she did mm-hmm. lose her father. So she has different circumstances. But you, like you say, that shine that she has, that level of empathy, it does allow her to look at her mother and say, you don't have to be afraid of me and just teach her what this is. Because I will say another thing I find very interesting with this film, and we haven't talked about it a lot, is Rose the Hat. Because another part of this shine, I think she shines as well. And that's what she was before she was turned into a vampire. A hundred percent. Yeah. 
and that's why she's so powerful. Cause you were saying like the lights got brighter with Abra, but you notice how the lights just go fucking crazy when Rose is mm-hmm. walking through the place. Like this yep. hotel is just like, what cut of meat is this? It has yeah. never experienced such a shine before. And that's why she's able to overpower Dan and almost overpowers Abra. But the, the only thing that was worse is this, the ultimate evil of the apathy that lurks within the overlook is something she's never experienced except for within herself as an evil being. And that shows the different pathways that you can take. And I love the fact that they hone in on the fact that Jack was, you know, he, I like how it was, uh, Carther, uh, no, heart, heart, like <laughs> Scatman Carthers. I want to say, uh, how Dick says to, uh, that's a level of casting we're talking about here. Uh, when Dick <laughs> says to Dan, like your father had a lot of dark in him, but he also had a little bit of light. Mm-hmm. And Dan was the other way around. And he had a bit of darkness as well. I think Rose used to have a lot of light about her. Oh, I completely agree. She's so whimsical. You know, it's that yep. it's just the nature of what she has become that she is the way she is. And let's face it. She's only so brutal in the final moments of this film because she's experiencing pain. So yep. she is acting out in a very human way about the whole thing. So, like, can you blame her? basically no. at that point. Uh, I think what's great about Rose the Hat is I think you're completely correct. And I think Flanagan goes out of his way to show you that she shines all the time. Like mm-hmm. when they have that moment where Abra first sort of connects to things and it cuts to Dan Torrance waking up and then it cuts to Rose the Hat feeling something. That's showing yeah. that she still shines. And I think that's how they find other people who shine because she sort of sends out like a a net to get them and it's almost like safety like the way she lures the girl in the beginning and she's like this is a hat it's a magic hat and she's like checking to see how good the girl's is like what color is the flower do i have in my hand and the girl's scared but you're like also you're like who's this like if you don't know rose hat you ever read the book you're like this is a weird way to start this movie but it's showing that mm-hmm. she shines i think even in the beginning but she's she shines, but is so far removed, as you said, from the empathy aspect of it. And now it just becomes survival for this the true knot. And I don't think all of them shine. I think they're basically turned into vampires. And if you yeah. if you have something you can give to the to the to the uh to the true knot, you don't die and you can store those little soul cylinder things. Mm-hmm. It sounds so silly sometimes when I die. like, okay, so <laughs> they kill these people, they put the, the steam into a cylinder and then they hold out of the cylinders and travel around the world and then they drink from the cylinder uh, <laughs> when they need to. Hey, you know, it's, it's like putting your bread in the freezer. You're just like, ah, it'll go moldy if I don't store it somewhere. So I love the fact when she, after uh, all of the true knot dies, she freaks out in that moment and takes all of pretty much, because I feel like one of the things that happens is her shine has kind of gone away to a certain extent because she doesn't have the empathy to it. She picks up all that empathy and all that stuff to find Dan without knowing who Dan is and to find more importantly, Abra because she wants to kill Abra now. At one point she wanted to turn her one point. She wanted to keep her for food so they could just feed off of Abra's strength the whole entire time. I love the scene when she first meets Dan and she's like, who are you? How did yeah. we not notice you before? Hello, handsome. And it's so good. Yeah, exactly. And then she tries to turn, she tries to make Dan the offer, like, you could join us and live 
live forever and like eat well, basically. It also shows how scared she is of Abra as well. The fact that she's trying yeah. to convince this guy who's probably just as powerful as she is. Yeah. They they need the two of them to handle this young girl who doesn't even know how to handle her abilities yet. Exactly. It's it's awesome. I I think it's a powerful moment. And then another powerful moment, which I think some people have issues with, but to me it's like the for Dan's journey, it's like the ultimate thing is when he confronts his dad, who's mm. played by Henry Thomas, playing Jack Nicholson, also playing Lloyd the bartender. To me, <laughs> I think it's the house basically showing in Dan's memory what his dad might look like, but also he's not his dad. He's Lloyd the bartender because Lloyd the bartender was the connection point between his dad and his dad's past, which would be getting drinks, and he had a favorite bartender who probably got him loaded all the time. And so his, in the original Shining, he goes down there, and he hangs out with the, Lloyd. His favorite bartender happens to be there. Like, how? Yeah. You know? Because the house recognized, here's your addiction. And then, so then they sort of make him look more like Jack uh, Torrance for Danny. And even there's some moments there, because I think the spirit of Jack is probably still in that hotel. Mm-hmm. But it's filtered through like a way that it doesn't look quite right, but it sort of mirrors the way I think about the other way. Like, this is someone's memory of what their dad maybe looked like. This is their memory of who this is. But he even calls me, it's like, you're Lloyd the bartender, always serving drinks at the Overlook Hotel. I think it's brilliant. And the way that they deal with that. And also, Dan once again gets tempted to shut it off, you know, just drink again. Just shut, shut it off. She'll take care of herself. There's that scene in the bathroom, which is only in the director's cut, which mirrors the Grady Jack scene. Oh, they did such a good job with that scene. And then it's like the house just says, she'll take care of it. Let the house take care of it. It's not your burden anymore. And it's a moment where you're like, Dan could easily be like, you know, yeah, you're right. And just stop. Or drink and just stop. And the irony of it is, I think that, you know, this is his moment of temptation. And this is the moment where the Overlook is basically putting its cards on the table. Like, it really is like, if this doesn't work, I don't know what to do with this guy because it worked on his dad and you yeah. know, he's so similar to him. It's got to work. And, I, you know, Dan had already anticipated bringing in Rose to let her deal with the, you know, weirdness of the Overlook. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he quite had the idea to do the trap the way he did it until jack slash lloyd says to mm-hmm. him what he should do yep. to abra and he's like yep. man that's a great idea just not for her yeah oh and that scene is so good because rose thinks she's in abra's head because she's been there before yeah. and she's like this is new this is a new spot where you'd go it's like i it's so good and she almost gets caught and you're like this close and you're like oh my goodness you almost like got rose dan dan mm-hmm. almost did it i wonder what would like, happen too I think she would have walked away and they probably would have left and everything would have been okay. That's what I think. I, I think <laughs> it could have been. I, I mean, obviously not okay because her dad's still dead. His friend is dead. <laughs> but they stopped the yes. true knot at least oh, to that point, yeah. you know? So everything wouldn't be okay, but I don't think, I believe like in life, everything happens for a general reason. We have choices we can make, but I think it's sort mm-hmm. of showing like you're going to get close to victory. But then you don't, and you still have to figure out what to do after that point. 
And then, you know, we could, I would, would have loved to see a version of that movie where it ends, where Dan traps her into the box and then probably burns the hotel down Mm -hmm. with Rose there now, um, locked away in his brain. But, uh, I think it's good. And I think I can't let go of all the, all of the spirits too. I can't let go of the trauma. I think, and I think he needed to get rid of it. And and he does that, and they take yes. out Rose, and I think it's powerful because then they overtake him again, and then Abra's strong enough to break through that. You're right. Yeah, she is totally. And I also think it's very interesting how you would think that him destroying the Overlook would g- just completely destroy all the ghosts that were in there. But I love how the consistency of the story is that they persist through trauma and through memory. Mm-hmm. So Abra now has the burden. Every single ghost that she saw, she yep. now has to lock away and do the same thing. But keep in mind, she's only seen Dan do it. She wasn't taught how to do this technique. She just no. does it. That's how strong she is. She could just learn by witnessing. Uh, I loved that callback at the end of how she recreates uh, little Danny's confrontation with the woman in the tub. Oh, yeah. Uh, but with even more confidence, how she's like, hold on, I'm just going to, I got a bit of a hard day today, but not for long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's brilliant too. Um I oh God, I love this movie. It's so beautiful. I th- I think it's truly beautiful and I I love horror, but I love film more. And this to me mm. is I put it up there in my top ten films since I've seen it. And you know, okay. that goes with like last year at the Marion Bad. I like movies about memory. I think I've really realized mm. that. Like I like Mulholland Drive. Uh you know, last year at the Marion Bad, I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it's a brilliant film. I've seen it once. Like, I need to watch it again. What It's like, what actually happened? I don't even really know. But it's like, because you get all the perspectives <laughs> of like different ideas. A Woman on the Influence, another one of my favorites. Like, I put that up there with those films. I think it's that good. Okay. It's growing on me. I can yeah. see why it would be in such high esteem on your end. Um, you mind if I get a little, little uh, philosophy nerdy real quick? That's fine. Great. Uh, So the quote I was talking about earlier, uh, I want to bring it back just a little bit to since we've given such a thorough, not a complete, but a thorough account of what this film is and how it affects us emotionally. The reason that I chose this particular quote is I want to just kind of talk a little bit about those two arguments that are referenced in it. So she was saying that in Humanities, we often don't talk about beauty because of two political statements that people tend to make. And the whole article that she has, it's a really long article. I'm going to distill it as simply as I can, but essentially she comes down to say like the two arguments are that either beauty is a problem because if we are focused on the beauty of a work of art or a person or a situation or anything, we're not really opening ourselves up and our eyes to the, wrongdoings or sociopolitical problems, you know, the problematic elements of a situation. And so people tend to say, oh, but it clouds your judgment that you can't really have proper judgment because beauty has been used as a means to distract for so long. And that is true. I mean, if you look how empires build their grand cathedrals and stuff, and even in this film, they talk about that when you have, uh, what's the grandfather's name? The one who passes away? Uh, Papa Flick, I think. 
Yeah, Papa Flick. When he's dying, you have Rose talk about how like we rode on chariots and we we you know were sitting on thrones upon bodies and all these beautiful things that they've created and how they had their systems of control. And that that is correct. Politically speaking, beauty is used as a means of control. I mean, if we have to look no further than the Nazi party and how much they focused on trying to make the world look more beautiful to everybody just so they didn't question anything. Mm-hmm. You know, for for fascists, uh Beauty was life because then you were complacent. Okay. She left that one and then she came back to, oh, the, the, I should say the name of the scholar. The scholar's name was Elaine Scary, which I think is a wonderful name to talk about horror movies with. Uh, And the article was called on beauty and being just. So she's also talking specifically about empathy. How can we treat each other better? The second argument is that if you look at things, the mere act of looking, especially in, in philosophy, they consider it to be an act of making something abstract. So you, we start to think in abstract terms about things. Um, more often than not, they're referring to people. You know, you can objectify people. You can make people feel more like a concept than an actual lived human being sometimes, especially, I, I think, a, a very touchy but you know, good example of this right now is the whole Israeli-Pakistan conflict and the genocides that are taking place over there. It's really easy to call it a conflict and then get caught up in the con- concept of two nations warring with each other and not look at the fact that children are being blasted away in the streets and that yeah. you know news outlets are being blown up and that there's still a level of inhumanity that's a part of it. So those are the two political arguments that are against beauty because if we looked at the beauty, they say you either can't see the sociopolitical part, or you're not treating things as what they are. And she debunks this basically by saying how it sounds more like those two trains of thought are at war with each other than they are at the concept of beauty. Because it is true, if I were to look at purely a sociopolitical aspect of any any demographic, whether it be you know ethnic or feminist or whatever, we can get too caught up in our kind of high position of thinking. And then like, are we really talking about these in in, like feminist discourse? Are you talking about women as individuals with different thoughts and feelings and emotions and giving them the level of equity that they deserve and need and the equal rights that we all should have? Or are you talking about woman, the concept and people do get stuck on that. What is the concept? Yeah, for sure. So, Yes, the political part of it can be argued you're not focusing on that. Well, the other side of things is yes, but if you focus on it too much, then you can't even see the political side of things. So they're kind of arguing back and forth and using beauty as a way to say that that's not what's okay. And she's like, look, if I experience something as beautiful, I am experiencing delight. There is something overwhelmingly delightful about it. It doesn't mean that it in itself is delightful. This is the whole point of this podcast is to talk about how certain things, no matter how horrible or even painful they can be, there can be a beauty in it. That's why we have concepts like melancholy. You know, there's this, you know, that whole state of I'm depressed, but I'm not, I'm okay with it. Basically like it drives me forward because I'm just melancholy. And so she's saying like, isn't it just strange to make an argument that basically says that we can't see beauty or we can see beauty, but nothing else, or we can see the other things and not see beauty. When in her viewpoint, it's more like a spillover effect that if you feel this delight, 
you're opening yourself up. You're becoming vulnerable to the sensation. And therefore, you are being more empathetic to the subject that you were finding beautiful. Now, let's say you watch something beautiful. You have those rose-tinted goggles on. You're still on that high, no matter how shaken you might be by the experience. And you turn and you look at someone you've never seen before. And just like you have with uh, the friend, uh, Dan's friend who picks him up, the way he looks at him says, you got to look about you. And it's this familiarity that he notices. So beauty can lead to kindness if we don't dogmatically hold ourselves to just thinking about one thing at a time. So I thought this was a perfect film to bring the subject up with because this is a movie that is visually just stunning. It like If you love aesthetics, you're going to be ravenous for this movie. Mike Flanagan yeah. <laughs> makes beautiful looking movies. He the does. color palettes on here, like everything has that kind of like aquamarine underwater kind of look to it. Yeah. Um, the sound design too, like that heartbeat, how they turned a heartbeat into a proper score. Yeah. Phenomenal oh my God. work from the Newton brothers. Oh, yeah. The Newton brothers are, they're, they're so good at it. They're like Flanagan musically, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> he got the right collaboration. Yeah. And they've always worked together, I think, because they just understand that core essence, which is the heart of everything. And of course, in this, that soundtrack is all based on that heartbeat that's constantly there, which sometimes mm-hmm. is dimmer, sometimes it's louder, sometimes, but it's like so beautiful and so profound. And another thing I think is beautiful is the costuming. Like, oh, yes. Uh, like, even Dan. Dan looks like normal, looks like basically what I would like to wear if I had a ton of money to buy clothes that looks like I... <laughs> yeah, he's really well-dressed for a guy who's been on a bender for like 30 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, granted, it's like cashmere sweaters and stuff, but I, I think it's great. Uh, uh, but it's like, it's so designed perfectly because it's so yeah normal and everyday. But then Rose, the hat sort of has that sort of... a. Uh, attractive alluring like the rings you know the things that like that the sort of pop in her brain yeah she wears that top hat but like her costume is just so phenomenal and you're like i know this girl like i know this woman you know yeah, uh, we all know a rose <laughs> crow daddy crow daddy oh, uh, he just uh, looks so his, cool all the time yeah so cool terrible character awful one of the worst but like grandpa flick Looks so cool. Uh, Snake by Andy. Their aesthetic is so on point mm-hmm. that, like, you're like, I love looking at this movie. I love looking at these costumes. I love looking at the, the performances of the actors portraying these characters. The costumes, like, add for all of them a level of, like, to their to their character. Like, everything's so intentional, I think. Yeah. And to Elaine Scary's point about that as well, we could get caught up. And it, it's not to say you're never allowed to, by the way, like, like keep in mind, anytime we're like any academic discourse, any discourse of any kind, that's just one reading of something. And that's the whole point of her statement is that it's so dogmatic to say, let's not talk about this one thing because it negates the other thing. I'm like, no, it doesn't. You can have multiple thoughts and contradictions and really think about it. But what she's saying is like, but it doesn't contradict it. Stop being weird about it because let's look at those costumes. Not only yeah. do they say a lot about the characters and they're really stunning. Uh, let's look at the power dynamics here. 
Dan dresses for comfort because he's at the lowest point in his life. And the yeah. better he feels, the more fashion he adds to it. He adds like a jacket and stuff to it by the end of the film. Yeah. Rose, however, has been in this, you know, almost like Egyptian goddess kind of position her whole life. And she dresses that way. None of that shit looks very comfortable to me. Most of it's like no. very airy and very thin and cold. If you don't have like a good like circulatory system, those yeah. rings are not practical at all. But she all. can, you know, she doesn't do enough to have to use anything in practical terms. So she's like, I sit on top of my caravan and sniff out vapor all day. So yeah. she gets to dress <laughs> however the hell she wants to. Crow Daddy's yeah. the same way. He's like, he probably just kills people, steals their clothes, moves on. You know, hey, yeah. this guy's cool. I'm gonna take your clothes. And they always want to have fashion on point. Yeah. Exactly. He's always on point with his fashion because, hey, he's a badass. He's going to walk through you. Uh, Abra is just a normal teenage girl. You know, she's yeah. just got a comfortable, pretty upper class life. But it also shows her power dynamic, too, because she's the only one who seems pretty much fit for a world that's difficult to be around because her parents raised her really well to know that no matter what your social status, there's people out there that are not going to treat you well. Right. And at the same time, she's just pretty comfortable with who she is. So she's really happy with the way she dresses. And you can see that. And, and I think that you, comes. Oh, yeah. You were saying, I, I think you nailed a, a point that I wanted to bring up. It sort of ties back into the whole philosophy. It's like, the way she was raised, although we spent a lot of time with her and her parents, you see mm -hmm. love and empathy and understanding, though they are sort of freaked out by how her power, you know, when they're like looking at the spoons and they all clash, they're like, what? All right, well, we don't need to know that side about you. We know it, we know it exists, but like she's, they're basically like hide it too. They're basically still saying what Dan says because it's like people want to understand it. And you don't come to that point of, trying to like protect your child from outside perspective. If you don't have love and care and true understanding of like, like they're raising their kid really well. I, I mm. think, and I, there's not a lot of time spent with the family, especially as a family unit early on in Abra's life, we sort of see snippets. The mom kind of leaves for a bit. We know what happens to the dad. Uh, but you sort of see that and it sort of reflects to me the nature of like almost like pointing out like yeah i can find beauty in this because like we've raised a cool great kid like uh but there's also like all this darkness we know that's out there we're trying to protect her from that without really having the relevance to be able to do it uh a in a relevant way because we don't really know what it is but we know like okay so they're like any parent they're like Oh, like if like if I had a kid and they're like, oh, yeah, I can read people's minds and do all these things and like watch me play the piano without actually playing the piano. <laughs> yeah, You're like, uh, oh, OK. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think they sort of like give like that good point of like they're like, we're going to raise you the best way we know how to help you in the future. And then Dan sort of being someone who knows how to shine is able to take that and be like, once he accepts that it's what he needs to do is like, I'm going to give you the keys, but I'll never be able to tell you how to do it because your experience is your own experience. And it's not mine. There's going to be some overlaps and we both shine, but I'm never able to tell you how to do it other than I can give you advice to continue to shine 
because you're powerful. Mm-hmm. We're going to need people like you in this world because there's more people out there like them who are going to try to take away not only your ability to shine, but your other people's and other people. Like it's always, there's always going to be a conflict. This is essentially what Dan's saying. But instead of hiding from it, what you have, accept it. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to do that anyways. Which is exactly what you're talking about. Like when she deals with the old lady in the bath bathtub, she's like, yeah, all right, let's go. That's on. Do this. Yeah. Yeah. And the beauty of that really is like take all those different people in the film and, and Stephen King's universe in general, and they all shine differently. It's like you shine your way, I shine my way. So Dan could have never told her how to use her power specifically. I think somebody yeah. like Rose would have tried, but Rose would have more been like, be like me. You know? Yeah. Again, another power dynamic that comes in there. And so that bit that we were just talking about, or at least that you were just talking about, and I'm, I'm kind of drag, like jumping into the tail end on here. It all stems from initially, if we think in cinematic terms, it all stems from what we see on screen and what we hear. That is the nature of cinema. Right. So we have found beauty in this allegory and in the narrative and plot. Of course, it's all there. And it's there in the book as well. But even Stephen King as a prose writer, as we were talking earlier on, gives you so much detail. There is an aesthetic to not just the phrasing. You know, there's a grammatical aesthetic to his writing, but there's also just him describing aesthetics constantly through his yeah. stories to get you to feel a certain way. And that is important and that does work. And that is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, There's yeah. a beauty there that teaches us a lot about the world and opens our, uh, you know, it opens us up. It's a scary thing to do. You know, talking about beauty is not an easy thing to do. If people consider it pretty, I don't know, soft mm-hmm. kind of topic, but that's only because I think that the danger there is, is that beauty has the power to break power as well. Yeah. Because it really opens your eyes up to your feelings. And when you know your own feelings, Look at Abra. There's nothing that can stop you. Exactly. And I I think I can, a beautiful way you said that too. I just believe that there is this idea that like, oh yeah, I don't really want to talk about beautiful things because it's going to be like too weak or anything. But it's like, no, we should, because once you open up yourself to admitting something's beautiful, doesn't mean that all the, that there's no problems in the world that there's all the things are, you know, Magic would be better once you found that magical beauty. Sure, you could get wrapped up way too into it of like seeing something beautiful in the world and like that's your focus, you know? Like then you're like, nothing else matters. That's not what you should do. But once you admit, like, oh yeah, I found it so beautiful, I found it so moving, I found it so in, in like just in my soul, like I think that's such a good feeling to have and it's a good feeling to talk about because you are able to still address all the other things that are going on, but you've got a focal point of being like, this is why I love this. This is why I love reading this author. This is why I love watching this movie. This is why I love going out and looking at flowers or like, I love to, you know, drink a cup of coffee and have a conversation with somebody. And there's beauty in that. Like there's beauty in everything. Everything has potential for beauty and we should discuss it more because it really hits something that I think, is internally in all of us, which is 
And it's going to be different. What you know, like people are going to watch Doctor Sleep and be like, "Yeah, I don't find anything beautiful about this." Like it's like about a guy who can read people's heads, about a young girl who can read people's heads, and then these vampires. Not for me, and that's fine because there's going to or or, and they, or they don't like the aesthetic of how it looks, or they think it looks too manufactured, or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're going to find something that they find truly beautiful, and they latch onto, and it gives you an ability to. Once you have the ability to feel something and recognize something that's beautiful to you, and then to be able to express it, like in a conversation like this, I think that adds power to just the world and how we live in it. Like, I think, I think yeah. it's vital to discuss beautiful things. It's discussing a part of yourself that you would normally kind of keep private, I think. You know, we now in philosophy, and you know, especially way back in the day, I don't know how much I would buy into this part of it, but they do try to make the claim that beauty is an objective state. So if something is beautiful, then it is beautiful. But they do break it down as well into different levels of taste so that we can right. still account for things that we can have disagreements within the same spaces about the same things. Like say, for instance, I say, Oh, the color palettes are beautiful of Dr. Sleep. And somebody goes, no, it's not I'm like, okay, maybe they weren't beautiful. Maybe I liked them, but I will say the use of them is undeniably beautiful because they do adhere to an emotional core that's there. And, you know, you use something like color theory, then you can't deny that that statement is being made with those colors. You know what I mean? And it, it's just such a vulnerable thing to talk about that those connections I think are what can really empower the world. And also for anybody to feel that beauty is not a good starting point, like it's a difficult starting point. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) You think you maybe have some life experience and really understand what you find beautiful before you can jump in the conversation at the same time. If you, if you are at the beginning of that journey and you want to have that, I want to talk to that person. I would love to hear a kind of, unfiltered new mind on that. But let's say, you know, look at Scream for you. Fun is a great entry point for a lot of people. And there's still other types of beauty in those films that kind of make us latch on. You wanted to emulate Skeet Ulrich. Well, I mean, yep. Billy's a is a beauty, beautiful boy, you know? <laughs> That's his allure. It's his charm. Yeah. He's an easy vampiric kind of rose the hat character in that film. I would I would agree completely. Yeah, and we know we're looking at him we're like what a sleaze, what a nasty yeah. fucker. And then at the same time we're like, but I love him. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, I love him. I'm going to write this character named Skate. That's I. I will have it be known in the story. My character Skate was not the killer. I was the ah. uh, cheesy boyfriend. I ended up dying. So, yeah. Skeet just can't live, can he? Skeet can't live. No, not in not in my scream or uh, Wes Craven's. (laughs) Especially not in the nineties. It just wasn't a good time for Skeet. (laughs) No. So, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap things up today? Uh, I can't really think. I think I said a lot of what I want to say about Doctor Sleep. I think it is a a wonderful movie. If people haven't watched it, I highly recommend watching it. And I think for me, the one thing I will add is a lot of people talk about the coldness of Kubrick's The Shining, about how it's cold. It's there's not a lot of emotion. There isn't. I disagree with that to an extent, but I find Doctor Sleep wakes things up in a way 
in a powerful way that like you could take the emotional things. If you watch it back to back, you'll be back to thinking yeah. about when you watch the shining and it, it, it brings something out of it. I think it just takes, it takes what maybe is missing there that King didn't like about uh, Kubrick's version of shining. I think it just brings it all to the forefront and I think it makes it a powerful film. And I think it's cool to have something that many years later impact at least my view and experience of The Shining every time I watch it now. I relate it directly to things I think about Dr. Sleep. That's that's a cool uh, thought. I haven't actually seen The Shining since seeing Dr. Sleep, so I... You should. I really look for... See, this is, it's one of those movies that... You, I'm sure you have a few of these yourself that... They're easy watches and you've seen them so many times that you're never really excited to see them anymore because yeah. it may not be like your favorite movie. I've had that with The Shining. I've had to analyze the hell of that movie for all my studies. And for sure. I it's an enjoyable film. I like it. And I remember catching it in the cinemas, I think in 2018 there was an anniversary. And yeah, so I think so. Had a, yeah, I had a re-release for that, which was perfect timing for Dr. Sleep as well, which is coming out the year after. I really want to watch that movie again and see it. I can already see it now in my head, like that coldness and stuff. It, it's kind of like the shining is Jack's chapter and Dr. Sleep is a continuation of Danny's story. Correct. I, I think that's it. But I think you're going to find, at least I did when I watched the shining. Now there's some emotional things that like I tap into from Dr. Sleep exclusively that like are brought to the shining in a way that it wasn't mm-hmm. there before. And there's a warmth that sort of comes out of these Moments like uh, uh, the moment when it's probably the only moments where Jack Nicholson sort of is like asking for help mm-hmm. when he's at when he's at the typewriter and like he's not being crazy he's just being like he's like but he's like manic he's basically like things are not good Th- something's wrong Wendy and it's right afterwards you know Dan comes down and like then she thinks Jack hurt Dan right. again even though it's the lady from. Uh, room 237 I uh, that scene is so good in that scene because of Dr. Sleep there is such an added weight to it that I I've always loved that scene but it connects to me so much more because you also have Dan coming down and he knows for a fact that his dad didn't hurt his arm this time but mm-hmm. Wendy is going to be like uh, no I, I know you did even though right before that you're having this super beautiful moment between the two characters a husband and wife and he's like he's like things are not good things are not right i i don't we need to maybe we need to leave what's you know like i need help basically it's like that moment of minutes and it becomes so much more palpable and powerful because of what you saw in the journey that you go through in dr sleep i think that's a beautiful new perspective to put on it and i thank you very much for bringing it up so listeners if you haven't checked out the shining in a while but you have seen dr sleep do yourself the favor maybe do a backwards double feature to see if you can recontextualize the shining for yourself based on the information and uh, i i have to agree with justin by the way the director's cut is the definitive cut of dr sleep uh it's not like you know blade runner or midsummer where it changes the whole view and context of the film but it just gives you enough of these little expositional moments that give weight to moments that come later in the film that already had a lot of weight but just the difference is there and it's palpable so please do yourself the favor and check those out uh thank you for that 
wonderful little cap off there. I don't think I could have ended it better myself. So we're going to wrap up real quick. Uh, This podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Screen pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Screen podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The American Beyond, hosted by Justin Yandel and Chris Vanderkay. XOXO Horror, featuring interviews with female-identifying writers and creators, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, on Twitter at sh- underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to keep track of the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Beauty Horror Pod. I want to thank Justin again for coming out. It's been so lovely chatting with you about this, and we could have gone on and on and on. Uh, I know I could have, but you know, recording limits, unfortunately. Oh yeah, understandable. Uh, I'm dealing with <laughs> right now. <laughs> but hey, this movie is such a delight to talk about in so many different perspectives. So thank you for bringing it forward and for being so candid about your viewpoints on this. So for the people out there who want to hear more from you, where could they find you? Is there anything interesting uh, out there that maybe you want to? push or plug or anything like that maybe yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna plug uh, two things one my twitter which is at justin underscore drabeck d-r-a-b-e-k uh and then i am eventually going to release and you know as we've talked about a lot i'm going to be releasing a piece mm-hmm. through 25 years later on uh the stand the latest cbs all access paramount plus thing and it's going to be very similar to my spectrovision pieces which are going to have its own place soon so look out for that and i'll obviously Plus, that's on on Twitter. It's going to be more about my personal journey through uh, that miniseries, and I'm very excited about that. And it's taken a long time. I've been working on it for like three months now. So I'm excited for when that finally hit the world. I don't know if anyone's going to read or it's going to change people's opinions on that series, but hopefully at least it gets one person to check it out and give it a chance. So. That's it. So that means that y'all should definitely check it out. Yeah, trust me, you know, if Justin's working on it for three months, you know, a lot of heart and souls going into this piece. And from our conversations about it as well, like, I knew the stand. The stand means a lot to my mom as well. But she's more like just a fan. She just likes the story and she'll go back to it for that reason. Uh, I love how when you were talking to me about it, you could give me very clear reasons as to why you keep coming back to it. And so yeah. everybody out there, that's what you can expect from this. It's not just, well, this is cool and this is similar and that is similar. Uh, Justin goes deep into what kind of path in his own life has uh, connected with that path for these particular adaptations. So I'm really looking forward to that piece. And... Thank you, dear listener, for joining us in talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no beauty here. Only death and decay. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.